From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Afternoon, and thanks so much for being with us on this rather soggy Thursday afternoon. Another busy show. We'll be talking a bit more about real estate and questions about the homeowner's grant coming up a little bit later on in the program. First, though, taking a look at a battle that is playing out in the courts, and the BC Supreme Court has temporarily barred Adidas Canada from operating a store under its Terex brand. And this is talking about the store in Kitsilano. This move comes amid a dispute with Vancouver-based outerwear and equipment maker Arcteryx. Arcteryx is claiming the global activewear brand is infringing its trademark. So this was an injunction that was granted earlier this week. It only applies to the Adidas Kitsilano store, and that's pending an outcome of the court dispute over the trademark. Well, outside of that store, there were plenty of people with opinions on this. Enough of this. Adidas can hit the bricks. This is a local company. It's wonderful. I say more of this, less of that. It's a shame it's this close beside their other uh, their other store, but uh, maybe the product will stand out for itself. And uh, you know, Arteryx has been around for a while, so I think the locals here are familiar with it. Yeah, I actually didn't make that association when I saw Arteryx like first opened up, I, because I mean, I think Arteryx is a kind of a brand on its own, and it stands for itself, and so I hadn't made that association right off the bat. A representative with Adidas told Global News the company is disappointed in the preliminary decision from the courts, but is looking forward to defending its case in the full court proceeding. Well, joining me now is Craig Patterson, founder and publisher of retail media site Retail Insider. Craig, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, How big of a deal is it? Or how often do we see disputes like this over trademark and over the use of a name? Ah, this has happened uh, actually quite a few times. If, uh, if, you, if anybody's familiar with Edmonton, uh, you go to West Edmonton Mall and uh, there's an amusement park there called Galaxyland, which when I was a kid was called Fantasyland until Disney sued them and they had to change the name. So it has happened before, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think what's getting a lot of attention here is we're talking about a pretty big ba- uh, brand in the, the brand of Adidas and going after or in this battle with Arcteryx, which uh, people uh, might be more familiar with or, or maybe not, depending on on where you shop and your lifestyle. But how does that play into it, do you think, that we're talking about retailers of such different sizes? Well, they are of different sizes. I mean, Adidas is, is absolutely gigantic. Uh, uh, how big is, of a hit is this to the company? Well, it's a bit of a hit. I mean, there's only the one store, but it took Adidas some time to develop this concept. And this concept was being developed while the company was also struggling with its situation with, you know, Kanye West uh, or Yee or whatever his name is and his, and his Yeezy shoes, because this has had a, a tremendous impact financially on, on Adidas, I think over a billion in losses. So now not being able to, uh, you know, further expand this Terex concept, which again, I think it was the first store in the world actually uh, on West Fourth and Kitsilano in, in Vancouver. It is a surprise. And I, I was a little surprised, honestly, that, that Terex won this round at least for now, <laughs> as, a, as a former lawyer. And why did that surprise you that Tarek's, uh, for, for so far in the court proceeding, uh, is winning? Well, I honestly, I mean, I, I saw this come through as a lawsuit, and, and I just thought, you know, it's happened before. I know there was a Tom Brown versus Adidas lawsuit with, with symbols, and, and, and I thought the names were, were differentiated enough. I mean, I, I've been to the uh, Tarek store on West 4th, and having the Adidas sign with the A and then the, uh, you know, name Tarek, I, I just thought they were differentiated enough. But now when I look at the photos together and then you hear that, you know, apparently 
people were walking into the Adidas uh, Terex store and were confused about Arc Terex, and there was apparently about 100 people or something that had done that. I can start to see where this lawsuit was having merit <laughs> in terms of uh, confusion in the consumer uh, consumer's eyes. And do you think that would have been something that Adidas would have considered? I mean, the proximity that they are so close together and the fact, even though it's spelled differently, uh, one of the things that Arcteryx made in their claim is that the stylized A in the logo looks a lot like the A in the Arcteryx logo. Uh, do those things all come into play as well? They would for this lawsuit. I mean, I guess for myself, because I'm you know, one of the journalists that's reported on these things over time, I, say, I don't get confused by these things, but <laughs> that's my own bias because I'm probably considered to be an expert. I mean, I guess I wouldn't be on the show if I wasn't. So, uh, <laughs> but, but, but it, yeah, in reality, people can be confused by things. I mean, I, I've been confused by various brands over the years. Uh, are, are they related to other ones? You, you don't know sometimes. So in, in this case here, I mean, uh, typically under intellectual property law, from my understanding, having gone to school and done a little bit of this myself, is, uh, uh, you know, if you've got a trademark, you don't want someone else coming in doing something that's going to make people think that it's your company. Uh, you know, you've got to protect intellectual property rights. And, you know, Adidas, uh, I mean, Arcteryx came in and and was preserving its rights, and and rightly so. Yeah, exactly. I I found it interesting, too, the the location, given that they're so close together. And I actually thought that that would work in in favor of of making people realize they're separate, because it would be strange to see two Arcteryx stores side by side, and it might make people do a double take, going, well, well, why, why are there two of these stores? Oh, this is Arcteryx, this is Adidas, or vice versa. Not that that makes it okay or anything, but I, I thought the the proximity might actually work in the for the argument that that you wouldn't mistake one for the other. Yeah, I mean the odd time. I mean Starbucks used to have two locations diagonally across from each other at Robson and Butte, but that's very unusual. Uh, <laughs> but but you're right. No, uh, and, and typically this clustering of retailers in one area is a good thing. I mean, West Forth has really become this outdoor uh, retail, you know, the Comar Sports. There's all kinds of retailers. You go up and down West Forth from Broadway over to McDonald's. There's, there's a good number of them, right? It's a great space place to go if you want outerwear or something to do some sort of outdoor activities. But, uh, but, but yeah, at the same time, uh, having them so close together, Maybe somebody was trying to go to Arcteryx one day and they ended up in the wrong store. I mean, they do have different stuff and their logos are different and hopefully someone will quickly figure that out. But uh, <laughs> once you get into stores, but uh, but nevertheless, that confusion, I mean, a judge clearly took this seriously and has granted an injunction. And a judge wouldn't do this willy-nilly or they, would, they wouldn't do this without reason. This is a, a pretty serious case uh, that could be precedent setting uh, or at the very least a decision which is going to have a profound impact on the plans for Adidas because this was going to be rolled out quite extensively, is my understanding. We interviewed uh, Adidas a while ago for a story. Right, and so the, the ATARX was going to be rolled out. So potentially, could this lawsuit shut that down? Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, certainly under the name of Terex. I mean, if Adidas would have to find uh, another name in order to uh, continue this initiative. So uh, if, if that's the way it goes, that's, that's what's going to happen. Well, I know the judge as well in this case said that it can't stop here. It must go to trial and they'll have to secure a date. So, uh, Craig, hopefully we can chat with you uh, about this again in the future. But thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. Very interesting stuff.
Time to talk a little bit about avian flu and some concerns when it comes to polar bears. There are some new fears that Canadian polar bears could be threatened by the spread of avian flu. This is after a confirmation of that disease killing a bear in Alaska. Well, University of Alberta polar bear expert Andrew DeRoche is joining me now to talk a little bit more about this. Andrew, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, So this is something that happened with a bear in Alaska. What do we know about that case and how avian flu was involved? Well, what happened in this case was the bear was found dead and it was brought in and they do what we do on wildlife. We call it a necropsy. It's like an autopsy. And what they did is they found evidence of the avian influenza in this bear Um, And the assumption is that it probably got this from eating a dead bird somewhere along the Alaska coast, probably on land. And is that rare to see that happen? Well, it's rare in some ways because, uh, for instance, in Canada, if a polar bear dies and it's found out on the land, we don't actually have a process where we would bring it into a research facility and normally look at what happens to it. Now, Alaska is a little bit better that way and better set up for doing it. Um, There's a lot more infrastructure along the north coast of Alaska. So we don't really know how often this might be occurring across the Arctic. We know that avian influenza has been affecting Arctic bird populations. Polar bears love to eat just about anything they find alive or dead. Um, So we suspect that there's probably more cases, but this is the first documentation that we actually have of it. And so proximity or location then and and the, how this might potentially impact Canadian bears. So what are the fears there? Well, this is a shared population with Canada. So the southern Beaufort Sea population goes from Northwest Territories, Yukon, and then into Alaska. So those bears move widely over this same area. And it is a population that we have ongoing concerns about because we have estimates of the population decline already. Uh, due to climate change, of up to 50%. So this is a vulnerable population, one of the most vulnerable that we are monitoring across the Arctic. 50%, and that's a, that seems like a pretty huge number. It is. It's worrisome. There's an ongoing inventory right now that's being conducted to try to get a, a new estimate. This previous one is now over 10 years old. So it's time to get in there and, and check it out again. But uh, my understanding is I'm not involved in this new estimate I was in the previous one, but they're having a hard time finding enough bears to actually get a good count. So it's, it's problematic there. And, and this avian influenza just adds yet another concern. Um, and there are interactions between climate change and disease expansion and the vulnerability of the bears when they're nutritionally stressed as well. And is it loss of habitat or a lack of food? What is kind of, in addition now to avian flu being detected, what are the main things that are threatening the polar bears? Well, the simplest way to look at it, the Arctic is warming two to four times faster than the rest of the planet. And so what it is, is it's just warming up the oceans. The ice forms later and it melts sooner. And this is typically in that part of the Arctic, forcing bears to make one of two choices, either move on to land for the summer period when there's no ice around, or they have to migrate long distances, like some years up to a thousand kilometers further north to stay with the sea ice. Historically, ice was right along the coast uh, near shore all summer long, but that's changed over the last three decades or so.
So if, if you push all those bears on land, one of the things they do is they start to eat anything that they find on land, and that would include birds and getting into nesting areas and things like that. Right. Okay. But, but this might seem like an, an overly uh, simplified question. If they're going all that distance, a thousand kilometers or up to that and going north, um, why don't they just stay there? Well, they, the problem is that's not where the seals are. And that's what makes a polar bear tick. Um, the seals are typically right along the continental shelf area. Um, and this is an area in that part of the Arctic that's only about 50 to maybe 100 kilometers wide. And that now that whole area is ice free during the uh, summer period. So historically, the bears would stay out there. They wouldn't catch a lot of seals in the summer, but they would catch enough to do okay. But now they have this sort of dichotomy they go north long ways which is energetically expensive you know you ask a bear to walk a couple of thousand kilometers extra in a year and that shows up in their body condition they they just burn more energy or they go onto land and then they they basically flake out there um and and sort of try to use as little energy as they can but they they are great scavengers anything that's dead will will be a, a free meal for a pole bear and you mentioned that uh, it is taxing on them and and physically. So are we seeing the the appearance of the bears then change? It, it is, yes. In some of the populations that we have long term monitoring, and the bears have just shrunk. Uh, so Churchill, Manitoba, the polar bear capital of the world, where a lot of people go to see polar bears, those bears are visually smaller than they used to be. When I started doing research there in the early 1980s. Um, the bears were just longer, like an adult female now from tip of nose to tip of tail is somewhere around 10 to 15 centimeters shorter. And that just reflects uh, a tougher sort of set of environmental conditions that they have to uh, live through. And you mentioned that this is a shared kind of bear population. And and one of the reasons we're talking about this today is because of this avian flu-related death confirmed with a bear in Alaska. Are we doing enough research, do you think? Are we monitoring what's happening to the polar bears as much as we should? Well, it's interesting. I mean, Canada has an excellent long-term history of monitoring polar bears uh, and their abundance. And that's been the major focus of a lot of the research uh, here. Uh, What we have not done a very good job on is actually monitoring disease exposure. And this is a, a vulnerable point for polar bears going forward. Um, because we know, and this has been long postulated, and we're starting to see the effects of climate change, is that as the climate warms, new species move into the Arctic. Um, and we're seeing a lot of species from the North Atlantic, North Pacific, moving into places where they didn't used to go. Um, and with them comes a whole new host of diseases and parasites. And how those may or may not affect polar bears is really unknown. Uh, but we're not doing the sort of monitoring that's required to actually assess that. We have very little disease monitoring in the Canadian Arctic. Hmm. Do we know if uh, when we see the other species moving in as well with the the temperatures changing, as you mentioned with the bears being scavengers, is there also the potential there though that they would be opening up or there would be more food sources? Definitely, for sure. There there is, uh, so you know, off of the coast of Vancouver, you've got those little chubby harbour seals that are around all over the place and they're moving into the Arctic uh, big time. Um, the problem is polar bears are dependent on a much more abundant seal, and it's a small, sort of like your harbor seals, but it's a ring seal. And these are 
incredibly abundant in the Arctic, and they're they're sort of more distributed out in the open ocean ice areas, um, and that's where polar bears make a living. They can't they they eat harbor seals in some parts as they expand their range northward, but it's not a suitable replacement for for the much much more abundant uh, ring seal. So there are changes like that coming, and we'll see what we call transient effects. So things might get better in a little for polar bears for a little while, but then we expect that as the ice continues to decline, uh, the conditions just get so bad that the bears won't persist in that area. Hmm. Will, will it have an impact, do you think, then on uh, on the uh, mortality rates or on survival rates, I guess, of uh, polar bear cubs? It definitely. That's probably the weakest link in the whole life history of polar bears. It's those cubs, once they get to about six, seven months, um, they're still reliant on their mother for a full two and a half years. But one of the problems we're getting and what we think is the weakest link is the mothers are having trouble getting enough food um, to nurse those cubs for the full two and a half years. And the cubs, because they're growing so fast and they really don't have their own fat stores on their own bodies, they're reliant on that really energy-rich milk from their mothers. Uh, If the mother stops lactating, uh, can't nurse them, then the cubs very quickly burn up what little energy they have. And so this late autumn mortality is what we think is one of the real weak points in, in polar bears. Hmm. It seems like there, there are so many factors and so many things uh, that uh, that could potentially be negative for polar bears, very much so than other bears, whereas we're seeing grizzly bear populations, uh, which seem extremely healthy uh, in parts of BC, black bears. Uh, is it because of the climate and the environment that they that they seem so much more vulnerable than other types of bears? Well, that's exactly it. Uh, you know, grizzly bears are very well adapted to dealing with a huge diversity of habitats. I mean, historically, they went as far south in North America as Mexico. You know, it's a state animal of California. They deal with warm temperatures just fine. Uh, We still have them in the Gobi Desert in Mongolia, for example. It's the same species as we have in British Columbia. Um, So they're eminently well-suited to dealing with these sorts of changing climate. And actually what we're seeing in the north is a range expansion of grizzly bears out into the Barrens area as the climate just gets actually better for them. But at the same time, what we're seeing is the contraction of polar bear habitat. We're seeing less ice, and our predictions are is that polar bears will contract northward over time. We still predict that they'll persist out to the end of this century, but they'll probably be largely centered in the high Arctic of Canada and parts of Greenland. Um, beyond 2100, we really don't know what the conditions for sea ice are going to be like, uh, so we don't look at that sort of time frame. Grizzly bears, they're going to do fine with the warming climate. All right. Andrew DeRoche, thank you so much for joining us and talking more about this. It's been my pleasure. Well, we are often talking about businesses that are dealing with many, many financial concerns, whether it's paying back loans, whether it's dealing with graffiti or vandalism, as you just heard in that newscast, a movie theater having to close the doors because the rents are skyrocketing. But my next guest is the founder of a business that is doing great, but is still facing some big roadblocks. Vincent Capitano is the founder of Island Chef Pepper Company and joins me on the line now. Vincent, thank you so much for taking some time today. Good afternoon. Thanks so much for having me. 
Well, tell us a little bit about your business. I know that you are located in the greater Victoria area. Tell me a little bit about Island Chef Pepper. Yeah, so we are going into our fourth year, and we're pretty excited. Originally, the company wasn't supposed to be anything big. Uh, I've been a chef for a very long time. I had a really great job uh, cooking for the lieutenant governor of BC. And I decided to, you know, dabble into some hot sauce, and it's kind of been gaining more and more momentum throughout the years to the point where I left that job. We've been making more hot sauce uh, every single day and more and more People are reaching out wanting to buy it, uh, whether it's uh, Superstore, Loblaws, Sobeys, Save-On Foods. It's, they're just calling me and saying, hey, can we put it on our shelves? And it's really exciting. That is exciting. And, and it sounds like from uh, from your voice, it sounds like you didn't really expect that it would take off like this. No, uh, not, not at all. Um, as, you know, someone who never really thought that they would get into food manufacturing and as a chef, you know, you make things all the time and you have really great recipes, like maybe I would sell it. The idea of ever having a product that I made in a grocery store was so far out of my mind um, to when the first store manager approached me in Victoria, which was the, the market stores, uh, which is just a small local grocery business. Um, I was like, yeah, that's great. And I was super excited and I thought it would stop there. And it just kept uh, snowballing from there. And it's been really exciting and terrifying at the same time. (laughs) And so how much hot sauce, say, a week are you making now? Um, So it's actually really hard to gauge. But in our, I kind of look at it on poundage of peppers that we process through. So if you will indulge me, in our first year, we did about 150 pounds of peppers. And then in our second year, we did about 500 pounds of peppers. In our third year, we did 15,000 pounds of peppers. And then this last year, we did about 32,000 pounds of pepper processing. So it's just really gone out of control. And now, like, 2024 is me trying to kind of wrestle it down and get, uh, get a better handle on it. That's amazing. 150 pounds to 32,000 in just a few years. Yeah. That's uh, so. So that sounds great. The business has taken off. Your your sauce is in grocery stores. More stores are looking for it. Uh, I understand, though the the quarters, the uh, the home base that you have, the workspace isn't very uh, large. No, not at all. And it's actually really funny because you know we people see articles about us. They see our stuff in big grocery stores. Um, they're always really shocked when they do an order online, and if it's a local delivery, I'm the one doing the delivery, and let's go, you're doing the delivery, and they don't realize how small of a company we actually are, and people will be like, oh, can I come see your facility? It must be massive, and it's, no, it's just a converted in-law suite in our home, <laughs> and uh, like even I have uh, federal and provincial inspectors coming, because we, we are uh, up to code for all that stuff. You know, they come, and they show up, and they kind of walk in the door, and they're like, am I in the right place? But yeah, we're in the right place where we get big deliveries and uh, um, it's always really funny to sort of see the looks on people's faces because they're expecting something way different than what it actually is. Yeah, I would imagine they're probably expecting a commercial space or or some kind of small factory or warehouse. Um, So you would like to expand, I would imagine. And what is the issue with that? Yeah, so uh, commercial real estate and residential real estate in Victoria are both really complicated and uh, scarce. So the the big thing is finding a space that is available that fits our needs and then 
once we've found it, whether or not a the landlord that has the space is willing to lease it to us in terms of what we're wanting to do and fixes that we want to make or surely just the the money required because it's you know it's what's available right now is six thousand seven thousand square foot warehouses which could be upwards of fifteen thousand dollars a month and like that's way too big of a jump for us to where we are right now so trying to find that middle ground in the right location that allows us to do what we want to do is what uh is what is kind of finding that uh harshness hmm. have you seen anything that would be suitable for your operation yeah we've we're looking uh we i, I got uh, it's really funny ever since that article uh you know the realtors come out of the woodwork and i got like maybe 17 emails of people saying hey like we can help you find a space and even the realtor that i've been working with was like don't worry we're gonna find you a space and he sent me a couple more more listings but uh yeah it's 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 hopeful and I'm, we're really excited and uh i'm really hoping we can get into a bigger space this year well it sounds like uh, you need it definitely uh, is it something could you keep going in the space you're in if you had to yes uh we could we could keep going in the space that we're in um currently right now this month uh i'm just tracking down more storage places and doing some re- reorganizing because you can imagine the amount of volume coming in and out, uh, I have to really keep on uh, space management. Right, right. And and is there any issue with uh, the production and what actually goes into place? Like you said, you have inspectors coming and, and making sure that it's all uh, to code. Is there any issue with, with doing it and continuing that kind of a business in an in-law suite? Um, only if we just it just gets too much in terms of the volume that we need to output but in that case we would just have to throttle our production or not take on any more than what we already have but uh, there's still plenty of room for growth in terms of like the inspection and the flow and all that we're we're very supported by the inspectors that come in they think what we're doing is really great even the city of langford when they come in and they make sure that our like the water supply and our grease trap and everything that we have going in, they're always uh, super supportive and uh, happy about uh, a budding business, even if it's in the the residential area. Hmm. So, so now that you've been talking about this, and like you said, uh, realtors have been contacting you and saying, we'll find you a space. How confident are you that you will be able to expand and find a suitable spot? I'm, I'm, I'm feeling 50-50 right now. But, uh, you know, as the week goes on, I'm actually going to go look today at a couple of places that were sent to us. So I'm really hopeful. Um, There's a few businesses that are looking to sort of like subdivide their space because, you know, they might have bitten off a little more than they can chew and they want to do sort of a shared partnership in the space, which is really exciting. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm really excited. Well, it sounds like it. And and of the problems to have when you uh, have a business, uh, I I get that this is one you'd like to solve, but there could be far worse problems to be dealing with at this point. Vincent, I'm curious again, it's so great that the business has taken off and that you're you're going through 32,000 pounds of peppers for the hot sauce. What is it about the hot sauce, do you think, that that really draws people to it or, or makes it so it's been such a hit? So I think that the big thing that people have been missing from the hot sauce category or even the condiment category for years is flavor. So a lot of times people, especially with more of the general used hot sauces, uh, it's highly acidic 
and like a little bit of heat. It's almost heartburn inducing, but I find that hot sauce is really getting into sort of its, you know, quote unquote, like craft beer renaissance where people are making um, better quality products that have a higher amount of flavor that are enhancing meals and not really masking it. So I find that people who really like our products really appreciate that they're finding a condiment that they can add to their meals that enhances it with a lot of flavor and the heat they're looking for, not just sort of that overly acidic uh, spice. All right. Well, that does explain why the sauce has really taken off. Uh, Vincent, I hope you're able to find a space and maybe we can do an update with you. But thank you so much for taking the time and for coming on the show today. Yes, thanks so much for having me. I hope to give you a great update the next time that we talk. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.